Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. I miss little Vincent so much. He loved to play baseball. I, I was driving him to practice. I guess I was busy making eyes at the guy driving next to me. I didn't notice he was sticking his head out the window, his blonde hair blowing in the wind. Uh, honey, Vince's hair was black. That's not the point. We're lucky he was adopted, so we just got another. It's my life, and I don't want to forget anything. Documenting every moment of life is very important. Take plenty of pictures of your wife. You never know when she might leave you for another man. It's important to document your happiness while it lasts. And use Vakari Film. When your son wins the game, when your daughter gets herpes. Vakari Film. Memories are forever. Sort of. It's me. Tomorrow, I will dream in green, yellow oceans, and froth on the beach. It's me or beauty. I'm an individual. What is love? It's me. Beauty. I dream Meaning. Oh, and I need designer perfume. It's me. Shine. Buy Helmet Shine. Helmet Shine is a fantasy. Helmet Shine is a spectacle. Helmet Shine is you. Is you. Oh, if shine. you desire it. I'm an individual. What I is love? I the pray. space between your ears. Meaning. Advertising. People on beaches. Shine. Let the children die. Tomorrow. I'm the white What's rabbit. I dream in black and white. Shine. Own a mystic. It's me. You're beautiful. That's enough. Shine. Buy Helmet Shine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I am your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack. And I decided to bring you another episode this week because I was feeling particularly motivated. Some of you diehard listeners might remember the episode of Yore... I believe it was titled Strangely Enough, which was the name of the book that I stole from the library at my old elementary school, by C.B. Colby. And we're going to be revisiting that today because it is a goldmine of spooky shit, and I enjoy reading it, and hopefully you enjoy hearing it. Without any further ado, let's get started. This story's called Babe in the Woods. Frequently, we read of youngsters wandering away from picnic parties and becoming lost in the woods. This is stark tragedy for the parents, even in the day of rescue helicopters, bloodhounds, state police, and a dozen other ways of finding lost children. In pioneer days, a youngster lost in the woods was due almost certain death. Prowling Native Americans and wild animals were common and there was no organized rescue service to speak of. It was almost a miracle when a lost child was found alive. In June 1783, a couple living in Warren, New Hampshire, set out to walk the mile or so to a neighbor's house near the summit of a low mountain to the north. Their four-year-old daughter Sarah begged to be taken along, but they decided to leave her home with the other children. As they started off into the woods along the trail following Berry Brook, neither realized that Sarah had slipped away after them. The little girl soon lost the trail and wandered away into the woods. After a while, tired and scratched by briars, she curled up by a big rock and fell asleep. Just as night was falling, the parents returned home. To their horror, they discovered that Sarah was gone. 
The other children, sure she was with her parents, had not been alarmed. It was beginning to rain as the frantic father called his neighbors to aid, aid the search. They combed the woods until dawn but found no trace of the small child. From Sunday until Wednesday, the search went on. Dozens of men from miles away looked night and day for at least some sign of what had happened to the small child. On Thursday, a strange thing occurred, an almost supernatural event. At about noon on that day, a man named Heath from Plymouth, 20 miles away, strode up to the cabin and said, Give me some dinner and I'll find your little kid. As he ate, he told them about a vivid dream he had had three times the night before. In his dream, he had found the lost child under a big pine tree southwest of Berrybrook, guarded by a huge bear. The neighbors looked at each other in astonishment, for it was true that some of the men had found the child's tracks along with those of a large bear, but they had not mentioned this to the distraught parents. The implication had been too horrible. Mr. Heath and another settler went off into the woods, heading straight for the spot in the dream. Hours later, the waiting group heard three gunshots from far away in the wilderness. This was the signal if the child was found. The two men had indeed found little Sarah asleep under a pine tree. But the dream prediction was incomplete, for there had been no sign of a bear guarding her. Later, when Sarah was warm and rested, she was asked about her adventure. She told them then how she had awakened from her nap the day she lost her way to find a big black dog sniffing at her scratched legs. She told of how she had put her arms around its neck and how each night the big black dog had come back and lain down beside her to keep her warm. It's kind of creepy considering they'd only found bear tracks around her. I know what some of you guys are going to say. Perhaps it was a shape-shifting demon. Maybe. Maybe not. I'm going with maybe not. This next one is called The Story of John Wilson, which ironically is the name of a very good friend of mine who I think listens to the show. John Wilson was a rather shiftless individual who made a meager living by doing odd jobs hunting and fishing. The year was 1840. The place was an island in Casco Bay, Maine. Deciding one day to do some duck hunting on neighboring Elm Island, John loaded his shotgun, powder horn, and shot, and a small lunch into his leaky old boat and rowed across. It was to be an eventful day. He dragged his boat up onto the rocky shore above the high tide mark and set out for a place where he knew ducks could usually be found. This day he had a long wait for his first duck, but finally he managed to bag one and hastily stuffed it in a safe place while he reloaded his old gun to be ready for the next target. While he waited, he opened his scanty lunch and began to eat it, slowly to make it last longer, keeping an eye on the water the whole time. Little did he know just how close he crouched to adventure and excitement. Presently, a lone duck came gliding toward the little cove before him. He quickly put down his food and raised his ancient weapon. On came the bird. He took aim and fired. Then, peering through the cloud of stinging smoke from the old muzzle loader, he spotted his bird, wounded but alive. It was flopping about amongst the slippery rocks above the beach. Heedless of his safety, Wilson scrambled after his quarry, his powder horn on its rawhide thong bouncing and bobbing against his ragged old coat. Suddenly, as he raced across a ledge, his feet plunged into a kelp-filled hole and he went down sprawling, his hat flying off and his old gun clattering on the ledge. For a moment, he lay there, stunned. When he realized that his quarry was escaping, he clawed frantically at the wet, slippery kelp that filled the hole almost to his waist. His hand closed about a stiff stick and he pulled it hard to free himself. It was not a kelp stalk that he grasped. 
It was the handle of an old copper kettle hidden in the crevice of the ledge. A kettle full of old coins. $12,000 worth. How they got there will never be known, but John Wilson, according to the story, spent the rest of his life in ease, something he mastered long ago. Imagine finding $12,000 and being able to retire. Holy shit. <laughs> it's not even a down payment on a shitty house anymore. At least not where I live. God damn. There's a war going on in the streets. It's the War on Thirst. Splunk is winning the War on Thirst with the new grenade-shaped cans. Hey, yo, pull the pin and blow your thirst right off in that brand new taste explosion. Boom! That's the sound of refreshment. Sprunk, go AWOL from the Cola Wars with an energizing mix of lemon, lime, ten times the caffeine and sugar. Plus, mercury and benzene for that extra pop. Yo, it'll bring the temperature right up. And the bubbles. Other beverages use carbon dioxide. We use ether to kick up that phase. Thanks to all that mercury, you won't remember anything that tasted so good. Now pick up a Sprunk Thermonuclear six-pack. Kill thirst and liven up the party. Toss your friends a Sprunk in the grenade-shaped can and enter the Sprunk sweepstakes where you can win a real case of grenades. Sprunk, blow your thirst right off in that brand new taste explosion. At Bravado, we're holding on to the dream. That dream is luxury and a gas-guzzling luxury car created in a nation that's 95% condemned. We haven't forgotten what America wants, a car that's massively overpowered, has fold-down seats for BJs on the way home from work, and cruise control so you can text while driving back from the bar. Bravado. United we stand. Together we fall. This next one's called Wolves on the Roof. One autumn years ago, when most of New England was still wilderness, a young man, his wife, and two children decided to set out to clear some land for a homestead and build their home. They chose a fairly level piece of land in the woods a few miles from a friend who had already built his cabin. The wife and two small children stayed with the friend while the young man started construction of the cabin. Finally, the job was almost done. The cabin was built of stout, unchinked logs and had two small windows set into the frames one on each side of the stout plank door of the split logs. Each day, the young husband brought to the cabin another piece of their few belongings so that he could save time later on. Soon, the house would be ready for the family. The impatient wife and the youngsters begged to visit their new home, and although the chimney was not yet complete, he finally agreed. Off they went, not knowing that they were embarking on a thrilling and hair-raising adventure. Since the rough bark roof was already nailed onto the cabin, and only the last few feet of the chimney had to be added, the family decided to spend the night there. But they suddenly realized that they had not brought sufficient food or bedding for the cool fall night. Rather than disappoint the family, the husband said he would go back to the neighbor's house for the things they lacked. He strode off, musket in hand, warning the family not to venture out of the house after dark. As he had promised to return by dusk, his family did not worry, but set about enjoying their new home. The youngsters frolicked about the yard, climbing the low, low banks by the corner of the cabin and playing leapfrog over the many stumps about the clearing. Just after sundown, the wife was horrified to notice gray shapes moving stealthily about the edge of the wood nearby. The hair-raising sight immediately called to mind all the things she had previously heard about wolves in the area. She quickly called her children inside and slipped the heavy bar across the door, saying nothing about the elusive shadow so dangerously close to her children. She soon heard sniffing noises about the cabin, and peering out, she saw three large timber wolves hunting for a weak place in the logs. 
She quickly built a good fire in the fireplace and waited in terror to see what would happen. She did not have to wait long. Suddenly, there was a thud on the cabin roof as one of the wolves leapt down from the low bank to the rooftop and stood glaring down the chimney hole at the terror-stricken people huddled below. The wife at once heaped more fuel on the fire, and the flames and sparks drove the hungry wolf away, snarling. Soon, another wolf took its place, then another, their fangs bared and their eyes glowing. This kept on steadily while the brave wife burned everything within reach. Outside, moonlight was already flooding the clearing. Just as the last of the straw from her mattress, the only burnable thing left in the cabin, flared up the chimney. She heard shouts and shots from outside. Her husband had returned in time to drive the wolves away. (laughs) She burned all the fucking furniture. Imagine how mad this guy was. Holy shit. Been hauling furniture there. It's like, no, no, place still isn't done yet. Gotta give it a few more days. I'm almost done. I just gotta finish construction. Then then you can come over, I promise. I want to see it now. And she burns all the fucking furniture. Uh, To burn your clothes. Just saying. Uh, All right, this one's called The White Dove. Many years ago in an Alabama village, there lived a man and his wife who were supremely happy together. After years of wedded bliss, the wife became very ill, and nothing could be done to save her. Just before she died, she announced to all the family and servants that she would return to the garden in the form of a white dove so she could be with her husband, where they had known such true love and happiness. Moments later, she passed away. No white dove appeared to make the dying, make true the dying wife's promise, and the months and years passed by. Eventually, the widower fell in love with another woman and decided to marry her and bring her to the big house to live. On the day that he carried his new bride between the white pillars and into the house, a white dove came fluttering into the garden and perched upon a white snowball bush by the gate where it uttered long, low moans as though it were heartbroken. Uh, uh. (laughs) That's what my white dove would sound like. Every afternoon it returned to moan and sigh on the snowball bush. The servants were upset and frightened, for sure enough, they thought the first wife's promise had been carried out at long last. Eventually, the second wife heard of the story, and she, too, became disturbed. Soon people came from the other village and from neighboring plantations to stare over their garden wall at the dove on the snowball bush. The new wife became more nervous and ill-tempered, and the happy home began to crumble. The husband, frantic, decided upon drastic action. For legend or no legend, he wanted to preserve his new life. The next afternoon, when the dove appeared, he seized his rifle and slipped from the house, stealthily working his way into the garden to where the dove sat, pissing and moaning, on the snowball bush. He raised his rifle and fired. A woman's scream answered the blast of the gun and the dove flew away, its breast reddened with blood. That night, as the husband slept, he died. No one could ever determine the cause, His widow moved away to be rid of the tragic memories of the past, and the great house soon fell into ruins, and the yards and garden became a mass of weeds. The master of the house was buried by the snowball bush, and his gravestone, they say, is still there. But there are no visitors. No, there's one. For it's said that every spring, when the white blossoms of the snowball bush first open, the dove with the red splotched breast once more appears to sit amongst them and bitch and moan pitifully of sad memories 
of the tragic past. That was a good one. My family! He's got a gun! Someone's breaking into your home. What do you do? Call 911? It takes the police an average of 35 minutes to respond to a 911 call. In that time, a burglar could have his way with your wife, smoke a cigarette, flip her over and go in for seconds. Don't let the worst happen to you. It is vital that you protect yourself. Do it the patriotic way. That's right. Ammunition has all the equipment you need to protect your family from the evils of a liberal society. Fixed, mounted, and shoulder-held submachine guns, mortars, surface-to-wear and all manner of heat-seeking missiles, and just in to celebrate the Gulf War, pink and blue tracer bullets so you can protect your family in the dark. Start the week off right on Make My Day Mondays with two-for-one on maim, strafe, and kill landmines. Got Gulf War syndrome? Get ten bucks off all machine gun rentals. Hey, if you love your family, prove it with a gun. Ammunition, protecting your rights. This one's called Witch's Revenge. Years ago, any old woman who liked to keep to herself and perhaps dressed kind of strangely was soon viewed with fear by those believed who believed in witches. No matter how harmless and gentle the woman might actually be, she was often said to be endowed with strange powers and the evil eye. Quite frequently, circumstances teamed up with superstition to make such an idea easy to believe. In New Hampshire, there once lived a family by the name of Emerson. There were two daughters, Sally, the older, and Nabby, the younger. Sally was in love with a young chap, but her parents disapproved of him. They much preferred Stephen Jones. I also know a Stephen Jones. <laughs> this book's just filled with generic white guy names a lazy but well-to-do neighbor in whom Sally had no interest. One day, when the menfolk were to be away, Sally planned to meet her true love, who was about to leave to seek his fortune. She was to decide this day if she would join him on his journey. He was forbidden to come to the house, so they had arranged a meeting place. That morning, after the man had left, an old woman came to the house asking for breakfast. Oh, dude, this isn't good. I've played The Witcher 3. I know how this ends. Although this old woman was reputed to be a witch, Sally's mother took no stock in such bullshit. She told her that they were very busy, but that if she wanted to get her own breakfast, she could come in and do so. This angered the woman, and she screamed, Well, mark ye, my fine lady, tis little work you'll get done this day before the sun goes down. And off she stormed in a rage. The girls and their mother were astonished at her fury. But laughingly, they went upstairs to get to their spinning before beginning their other chores. An hour or so later, they started down to the kitchen to get the real work done of the day, but the door to the kitchen and street would not open. Its simple latch could be raised easily enough, but try as they might, the door would not budge. They returned upstairs, opened a window, and called to a passerby who had stopped to water his horse at the trough across the street. However, he didn't look up. Again and again, they called to people passing by, but nobody seemed to hear them, no matter how loudly or long they called. Finally, they gave up and settled down to wait until the men came home to release them. As the day wore on, they recalled what the old woman had said about their not getting any work done before the sun goes down. When the sun dipped below the horizon, they again opened the window and called to a neighbor passing below. He looked up at once and then came into the house, opening the door with no trouble at all. He looked at them curiously and left, shaking his head and muttering. <laughs> Their release came too late, for no work had been done that day, and Sally's lover, not finding her at the meeting place, 
left without her, thinking she had decided to give up on him, so she married Stephen Jones, as her parents had hoped. The disrespect. What a miserable fucking story. (laughs) Alright, this one's called Maximilian's Millions. Somewhere in Texas, near Castle Gap, about 15 miles east of the Horsehead Crossing of the Pecos River, there lies a treasure, estimated to be worth four to five million dollars. The following story is one of many tragic incidents attending this vast hoard of lost treasure. While the United States was in the midst of the Civil War, Napoleon III of France established the Austrian Archduke Maximilian on the Mexican throne against the wishes of the Mexican people. The new emperor brought with him his personal fortune, and during his precarious stay in Mexico, he accumulated still more gold and jewels to add to his coffers. However, he was afraid that he would never live to enjoy it, and rightly so. In 1866, a year before he was dethroned and executed, he decided to send his fortune to San Antonio, Texas for safekeeping, but it never got there, and it has never been found. The treasure was loaded into 15 ox carts, guarded by four Austrian friends of the emperor. The 15 drivers were told that the carts were full of barrels of flour, and they set out for the border and safety. Once across the border, they met six ex-Confederate soldiers who told them the route to San Antonio was beset with hostile natives and highwaymen. The Austrian conveniently hired the ex-soldiers to go with them as guards. One night, the soldiers discovered that the flower was treasure and decided that they would steal it for themselves. The next night, near Castle Gap, they murdered the Austrians and the Mexican drivers. Then they buried the treasure with the bodies on top of it and burned the carts. Charred embers were the only visible remains when the six murderers set out for San Antonio to spend the money they took with them and to get help to bring back the rest of the huge fortune. On the way, one of the men became sick and stopped to rest, urging the others to go ahead without him. They believed that he was faking and planned to get more of the treasure for himself, so they murdered him. So they shot him and left him for dead. But the wounded man was not dead. And in a day or so, he was able to hobble on after his would-be murderers. Shortly thereafter, he came upon the bodies of the five, who in turn had been murdered and robbed. He kept on, and stopped at a camp of horse thieves for the night. That very night, the thieves were captured by a sheriff's posse, and the wounded man was thrown into jail with the others. Later, he was set free, but a doctor told him he would soon die of sepsis. In his last moments, he drew a crude map showing where the treasure was buried and gave it to the good doctor. After the renegades and the natives had been driven from the area, the doctor tried to follow the map to the spot where the cart was burned, but he was unable to find it. Somewhere under a sand-covered charcoal heap lies the vast treasure guarded by the bones of 19 men who never reached their goal, but were revenged by circumstances. Mikey, where are you? Hi, you can't see me. My invisibility cloak is on. Oh, Mikey, stop drawing pentagrams on all the doors. The Cavern of Sorrow. It's the fantasy game that's sweeping the country, the Cavern of Sorrow. Learn about our exciting history and have fun, too. I'm a holy warrior on a quest. I'll kill you if you don't believe like I do. You can't beat me, stupid. I'm invisible. I got invisibility seeing glasses, dumbass. Lod Zad the wizard gave them to me. Remember our adventure at Gash Canyon? The Cavern of Sorrow. 
Gather ye friends and embark on historical adventures. I'll cut your head off with my sword. Oh, no, you won't. I have a metal neck given to me by Gorath the Backdoor. I got him when we traveled to the nether regions of Gorthback. There I had eight wives, 47 kids, and other concerns. The Cabinet of Sorrow! It's not just a game. It's a secret society of special friends. Will you find the Cabin of Sorrow, or will it find you? The Cavern of Sorrow! The Cavern of Sorrow, huh? There's a low-hanging fruit joke that I could make, but I'm not going to because I'm a bigger person than some. This next one's called Phantom Schooner. Probably all of us at one time or another have encountered something that was hard to explain. It might be the feeling of being followed, watched, or hearing mysterious sounds in the night. Or sensing a strange tall man in Death Valley. It might be a vision of something that wasn't there at all. This is a story of something which apparently wasn't there, even though more than one person was sure that it was. The time was some years ago, the place the Caribbean, where I was on a patrol cruiser trying to apprehend some smugglers. The little cruiser was hidden in a tiny palm ring cove one night, awaiting the appearance of a certain small schooner known to be in operation in the area. The only light to speak of came from the stars and a blinker buoy at sea beyond the entrance to the cove. The moon was down, but by the light of the stars we could distinguish between sea and sky and shoreline. We watched and waited. An hour or so past midnight, one of the crew spotted the dark sails of a small sailboat appearing above the beach by the cove entrance. Soon, the silhouette of the little boat, silent and dark, passed in front of us, blotted out the blinking light from the buoy, and disappeared behind the point of land to the right of the cove. It must be our quarry. We pulled up the anchor, started the engines, and moved silently out of the cove, turning south along the coast and keeping close to the shore. Ahead of us, also close to the shore, we could faintly see the outline of the schooner beating along under a stiff onshore breeze. As we gained upon the boat ahead, we, pre we prepared for what might be more than just a routine checking of a vessel without legal lights. A belt of ammunition was fed into the machine gun on our bow. Sidearms and rifles were passed up from the gun lockers below, and the spray jacket was removed from the big searchlight atop the cabin roof. Our procedure in such, con in, in such a contact was to come up a bit to the windward and astern of any such boat, snap on the powerful beam, and then, then close in for whatever action was required. Depending upon what the glare of the searchlight revealed, a small schooner without running lights beating close to the shore late at night could mean almost anything. A careless skipper with a fine disregard for, regula for regulations, a forgetful native crew coming home from a celebration in one of the small villages, or it might be the schooner that we were after. We drew close astern of the silhouetted schooner, swung windward of it so that our boat would cut the wind and slow the boat ahead, and snapped on our big beam, but... There was nothing there. We swung our huge beam around the area, even up and down, but our quarry had vanished. What had we seen, or what had we thought we had seen? <laughs> you swung it up into the sky like it took flight? No. <laughs> oh, man, that sounds like a Coast Guard story. And of course, if I have any Coast Guard Puddle Pirate listeners, thank you very much for your service. This one is called Bandits Buried Loot. Monterey, Mexico has been the scene of much lawlessness over the years. It was there that this interesting story began one day in 1885 when five bandits held up and robbed a bank. They escaped with about $18,000, pursued by the rurales, local law officers, and the bandits fled northward across the border and into Texas. 
During the chase, four of the bandits were killed, but one escaped with the loot, all in gold coins. When he neared old Fort Belknap, he feared that he would be stopped and questioned by the soldiers stationed there, so he hid out for a few days until he saw his chance to steal a cast-iron bean pot from a farmer's house. He put the coins into this pot and buried it, expecting to come back for it later when the excitement had all died down. Not long after, he fell in with a group of renegades. In the course of an argument, they shot him and then rode off, leaving him for dead. Two Texans heard the shot and came to investigate and found him bleeding to death and nearly unconscious. But before he died, he told them about the buried loot and said they could have it in payment for trying to help him. With his last breath, he gave them directions. One mile from Fort Belknap, 256 steps north of a creek, 86 steps west of a prickly pear tree. It's buried and marked with a swallow fork. Stick. And it is buried the depth of a wagon rod with one half of the ring showing above the ground and three rocks piled against the ring. The two Texans were pretty skeptical of the bandit's story, but sometime later, one of them, a man named Carter, decided to go see if he could find the location mentioned in the rather garbled directions of the dying young man. He retraced the steps of the bandit and finally spotted three stones which seemed to be piled over something. As he began to kick away the stones, he heard a rider coming. It was the owner of the property. Rather than share the treasure with him, Carter said nothing about why he was there, and he was ordered to leave at once. Several times later, he returned to recover the treasure, but as time passed, dust covered the half-ring of the wagon rod. The stones all looked alike, and the forked stick could not be found. Had nature cheated him out of the fortune, or had the owner become curious himself and discovered the ring and the treasure? Carter never dared to ask questions for fear that he would tip his hand. But unless the owner found and recovered the pot of gold, it's still there waiting for some lucky person's rainbow to point the way. At Bravado, we don't just make cars, we make America. Farms, fields, football, and getting together with some old friends. It's a diner where the waitress knows your name and gives you a hand job. It's a parade down Main Street with children cheering as their parents' jobs get outsourced overseas to be done by illiterate kids. It's a slow motion shot of your kids running happy on a beach, ignoring the dead mammals and stricken seabirds washing up from the latest oil spill. Our fires burn bright, especially when you're breaking apart furniture and burning it in a barrel to keep warm while your wife turns tricks to buy food. We know America is hurting. We're in this together, which is why we want you to tell your congressman to approve our newest bailout. Bravado. United we stand. Together we fall. Oh, dude, I remember this next one from when I was a kid. This one this one gave me the heebie-jeebies when I was a little boy reading this book for the first time. It's called The Painting in the Cavern. From the window of my room in Puerto Rico, I could see the battlements and moats of San Cristobal, the famous old Spanish fort. Many times I explored its underground tunnels alive with giant insects, climbed over its battlements, and visited the famous haunted sentry box down by the crumbling seawall. There was one part of the fort I, have never, I had never been to, the great underground cisterns for drinking water. I had heard that they were so huge that a rowboat was needed to get about from one side to the other. There's a strange tale about the San Cristobal cisterns. A local resident, the story goes, had persuaded a friend to visit these gloomy, dripping, and altogether unpleasant underground lakes to see what they were. They obtained an old boat 
and some cars and a lantern, and after considerable trouble getting the boat down through the tunnels, they launched it upon the now stagnant waters of the stone-walled and roofed reservoirs deep within the vast walls of San Cristobal. In one of the gloomy, water-filled rooms, the light of their lantern fell upon an old oil painting hanging on the wall. They rode closer and saw that it was a lovely painting of some religious scene. It was a shame to leave such a beautiful picture there, unseen by anybody. They decided, so with great difficulty, that they removed it and took it to a local man's home. His wife objected, for who, know, who knew what germs it carried or who its owner was. But over her protest, the painting was hung on a wide stairway wall. The next morning, the wife saw that it was gone and thought her husband had relented and taken it back. He, in turn, thought she had removed it, and for days, neither of them spoke of the disappearance. Until the friend who had helped bring it there, asked what happened to it after all their hard work. The man and the wife both confessed that they had not touched it. Mystified, the men returned to the underground cistern with the boat, and sure enough, the painting was once more back on the wall deep below the ground. This time, they didn't touch it. And it may very well still be there. Actually, that was not the one that I read when I was a little boy that gave me the heebie-jeebies. But I will find it. Until death do us part. Gosh, I remember that day like it was yesterday. Jennifer looked so beautiful. I knew I'd love her forever. And then she was driving along a canyon and her brakes went out. Well, I'm moving on now and remarried someone half my age. God, I love banging her. I started my life over with Crimson Executive Spouse Indemnity Services. Life can be uncertain, and you never know when your wife will be tragically taken away. Crimson set me up with a huge life insurance policy on my wife. I can't have her back, but now I have a second home. I was devastated when I found out my wife was cheating on me, and even more so when she fell underneath the train. I was nowhere near at the time, and my phone records proved it. My life changed forever. I was a real mess for hours. Thankfully, the week before, I'd met with Crimson. Thanks to Crimson, I've had a penile augmentation and am much more confident with women. Thank you, Crimson. To have a Crimson Planning for the Future Kit faxed to you, just dial 1-866-505-CRIM. Okay, found it. This one's called The Light in the Window. On a train going through snow, Mexico, one night, some of us were sitting up pretty late telling yarns. One of the chaps in the party told this story. A friend of his who lived in Ontario became fascinated with an old painting he saw in a dingy little store. The picture was of a castle on a hilltop. The scene was dark and gloomy, and every window in the castle was dark except for a small one high in the stone tower. The man wondered why anybody would paint a castle with a light in just one window. Was there a story behind it? He bought the painting and hung it in his home. But all he could learn was that it depicted a castle in Scotland, and there was neither a signature nor a date. One day, as he was cleaning the painting, he found a few Latin words in the corner. He asked a friend to translate the words for him, and he learned that they meant, Every century it will be dark. But this inscription made little sense to either of them, and so it was soon forgotten. The painting was hung in the man's home for many years, and his children took pleasure in speculating about why the window was lit and who had lived up there in the tower. It was quite a source of conversation for many years, but it was to become even more so. One evening, the owner of the painting was telling some guests about how he had acquired it and all the questions surrounding its background and meaning. The guests wanted to see this unusual and mysterious piece of art, so they all trooped into the hall where it hung. Imagine their astonishment and consternation of their host to see on the painting the window in the tower was dark. They examined the painting and were further astonished to see that the black paint on the once-lit yellow window was old and cracked 
uh, seemingly matching the paint on the rest of the picture. There were no signs that it had ever been different, let alone bright yellow. After the guests had gone, the embarrassed host unsuccessfully tried to find a solution to the puzzle. The next morning, he returned to the painting and felt his skin crawl, for again, the window in the tower was illuminated. Then he thought of the Latin inscription that he had nearly forgotten. Every century it will be dark. He made a note of the date and began a serious search into Scottish history. Eventually, these facts were uncovered. The castle had been the home of an evil character who had two sons. He hated the elder son and kept him locked in the tower while his younger son had all the wealth and pleasures he could give him. Exactly 500 years before the night when the painted window was dark, the imprisoned elder son had died in that little room high in the tower. He punished him by letting him live in a castle rent-free. I wouldn't mind that punishment. All right, next one is about San Cristobal again. It's called The Doomed Century. San Cristobal harbors another mystery, the haunted sentry box. There are many sentry boxes there sticking out like thumbs. Some have fancy ball tops and others have none, for they were probably knocked off over the years. The sentry boxes are entered through narrow passageways between the walls. From the slit windows, the lonely sentry can observe the sea and other approaches. There is one sentry box that has a weird story. It's below the main part of the fortress and can be seen by looking down over one of the high walls above it. The coast runs west beyond it and the gray bulk of Morro Castle, another fortress guarding the entrance of San Juan Harbor, looms in the distance. According to the legend, many years ago a sentry was sent to this box to keep watch out to sea. It was a lonely post and none of the garrison wanted this job, but the men chosen could not disobey orders. So off he went, in spite of a premonition that he would not return. He even mentioned his apprehension to some of his buddies, but they merely laughed in his face. Some hours later, another soldier was sent to relieve him at his post, but the sentry box was empty. There was only a weird, stinky smell that filled the lonely stone structure down by the water. What had happened to the sentry? Perhaps he had defected, run away, or fallen into the water from the narrow walkway between the low approach walls, but there was no trace of him. Even his weapons had vanished. Probably just got a case of fuck this shit, goddammit, I'm leaving. <laughs> the disappearance was reported to his superiors who suspected that the soldier had deserted. That's what I would think. From a high point on the fortress walls above, an officer watched the box and the new sentry on duty. For some hours, all was quiet in the box below the wall. Then suddenly, the officer heard a piercing scream ringing out above the roar of the surf. He sprang to his feet for a better look and saw a bright light coming from inside the tiny stone box. The light grew brighter and brighter until he could no longer look at it, and then it faded away as a huge black cloud of smoke issued from the gun ports of the doorways and drifted out to sea, and everything was quiet. The officer gathered together a band of men, and they hurried down the slope to the open stone door. Inside there was silence, for there was no one there. No trace of the second soldier remained, but the inside of the box was black with soot, and a strong odor of sulfur and brimstone was thick about the gray walls. The men fled back to the fortress above, and the haunted sentry box was never used again. This weekend on Weasel. Well, you look at the size of that thing, ladies and gentlemen. There's the real world, and then there's ours. My God! Thunder Beast is out of the ring, and he stabbed Dr. Diavolo with his Cyclops Serpent. That's a triple roundhouse hail Joseph grapple smash. You don't see that very often. There are 
are gods and there is man. And one must fight for the intergalactic wrestling title this weekend. You can't run, Hammerfest! When I stick your head between my legs and pile drive you up and down repeatedly, then you'll know what kind of man I am. It's entirely believable sports action. Grown men fighting in leotards with their bare hands and thighs. This is manly, not homoerotic. See as Thunderbeast fights the primordial force of Brontosaurus Rex, the wrestling caveman that drags his woman around the ring by her hair. The wrestling match that the world has been waiting for. And watch the group wrestling match that has some saying we've gone too far. Six men, one ring, no way out but down. Watch the epic battle and wonder at all human culture. Sunday night on Weasel TV. I'm hungry for something different. Zebra. Zebra Bar. Get the fever. It's the candy bar that's fun to try. It's half smooth white milk chocolate. And the other half is deep dark chocolate. Wow, it's enormous. How about cream filling? That too. Put it in your mouth. Yes. Whichever side you crave, pick up a zebra bar and let the chocolate melt in your mouth. Zebra. All right, this one's called the Phantom Stagecoach. Many years ago, there was a small Arizona frontier town that was kept alive by a gold mine nearby. The town had been on a stagecoach route. But when the mine petered out and was abandoned, the stage line was discontinued. The little town was almost completely cut off from the rest of the settlement. Only an infrequent freight line run by a local livery stable owner remained. There was one young boy in the poverty-stricken town who was always exploring the nearby hills, hoping to find another mine to bring back the people who had moved away. And also, the stagecoach line which he had loved. He had always been there to meet it when it came tearing into the little town in a cloud of dust. The other people in the town looked upon the boys prospecting with amusement, but they did not bother him. In fact, they rather hoped he would find a mine and bring back the prosperity that the town had once had experienced. One day, the boy left for the hills as usual, with his burro and his lunch. That's a donkey for you non-Spanish understanding fuckers. But by nightfall, he had not returned. As he had always been back by dark, his parents became concerned. True, he was self-reliant and was used to rough living at the times in the area, but anything might have happened. Finally, just after midnight, he came home, exhausted and excited. The stagecoach, he had said, had come back to town after all. Yee-haw. Then he told this story. He had become separated from his burro back in the hills, and after searching for a long time, he gave up and started home on foot. It was dark by the time he reached the old coach road to town, but he could hear the howls of the wolves in the timber of the foothills close by. He hurried, but the cries of the wolves behind him became louder and louder. In a panic, he climbed to the top of a high rock by the roadside to wait for the pack to close in. Just as the wolves approached, he heard the noise of a stagecoach coming along the old road. A dark stage, drawn by black horses, had pulled around the bend and come to a leather-creaking stop beside the rock where he sat in terror. The driver motioned for him to climb in. Hey, little boy, I lost my puppy. Can you help me find him? I got candy. And the coach raced towards the town with the wolves howling right behind. It was quite a story for a young boy to make up, but the strangest part was to come in the light of the next day. Just outside of town, a huge gray wolf was found, obviously run over by a heavy wagon or stagecoach. The tracks of the vehicle came right to the edge of town, and then they stopped. 
They did not turn around and go back. They just stopped, as though they had vanished with the coach that had made them. Whatever had brought the boy back to safety was certainly something more substantial than mere imagination. Interesting. I don't believe it, but interesting. This next one is called The Guide. In the pioneer days of the Old West, a family had settled on the edge of a wide forest. Close by in the woods lived an old Native American couple who were very friendly. The old natives and the little daughter of the pioneer family were particularly fond of each other. One winter, when the youngster was about six, she started to visit another little girl who lived in a cabin about a mile away through the woods. She had gone, she'd gone there alone many times before, so her parents thought nothing of her making the trip again, even though it was winter and it looked like it would snow. There were few wild animals in the forest, and no wolves had been in the area for many years. The child bundled up in long leggings, tied a shawl over her head, and started off. Her parents were not concerned until they realized that it was growing dark and she had not returned yet. When her father stepped out into the twilight to see if he could see her or hear her coming, he found to his dismay that it was snowing quite heavily. And, unfortunately, there was no sign of his small daughter. At once, he and his oldest boy hurried into the heaviest hurried into their heaviest wraps, took a lantern and their musket, and started off at a trot down the trail to the other cabin. As they ran along, they kept calling the little girl's name, but their only reply was a howling of the wind and an occasional hoot from an owl. At the neighbor's house, they learned the little girl had left some time ago before the snow began and should have arrived long ago. Their alarm mounted, but perhaps, they reasoned, she had left the trail to visit the hut of the old Native American couple. The girl's brother set forth to visit the natives, and her father and the neighbors headed home, fanning out through the dark woods to see if they might find the girl before the snow and the storm covered up all her tracks. The men reached home first and were overjoyed to find the little girl safe by the fire, drinking some hot broth while her mother dried her clothes. She had lost her way, she told them, and after stumbling in the drifts for a while, she had started to cry. Almost at once, her old native friends had appeared and led her home, holding her tiny hands in his all the way until they could see the lights of the cabin ahead. Then he had smiled at her and vanished into the dark woods behind them. Later, her brother returned from the old native's hut with a sad tale. There, he said, he had found the old squaw huddled by the body of her brave, who had died two days before. Huh. Today, we marched on from Fort Struther after sunrise to a creek village where our troops fought the savages and shot them like dogs. Honey, it's time for bed. Hang on a second. I'm killing a squaw. Take that, you pagan bitch. No, no. Him and his commemorative miniatures. My husband was getting so bored working and he didn't have an interest to spend money on. But he's always loved history. Then I heard about grown men who like to play with toy soldiers. War is so interesting. With commemorative miniatures, I began by faithfully rebuilding the charge of the Light Brigade. And after that, the Trail of Tears. I've built accurate recreations of 15 significant battles as well as training camps, prisoner war camps, and forced labor death camps. Now I spend all my time painting toy soldiers and attending conventions. Commemorative miniatures. They're instantly collectible and a great value. For just 37 monthly payments of $19.99, you get a starter pack allowing you to recreate the battle of your choice. Show your inability to deal with present-day problems by recreating scenes of mass slaughter from the past. Reenacting battles is great for your marriage, too. One night, my husband's General Custer. The next, Napoleon. On Saturdays, I'm a Cambodian villager, and he's a GI that has his way with me. <laughs> then I kill her. Commemorative miniatures. They're not 
not toys. They're very valuable, collectible, two-inch pewter model armies. This is a hobby you can't afford to miss out on. Jesus Christ, that whole fucking commercial was in such poor taste. But if I cut it from the show, that just wouldn't be my fucking style, and that's why you guys listen. And that's why I left it in. Alright, this is probably going to be the last one or two. This one's called The Bewitched Cat of the Cat Skills. In the early days of our country, many tales of witchcraft originated in the Catskill Mountain area of New York State. For example, take the story about the cats of Spooky Woods. Spooky Woods deserved its name, for everybody knew that it was full of mystery. In fact, it was said that even dull-witted cattle who wandered into the woods would suddenly rush away in a panic at what they had encountered. I remember being called dull-witted cattle when I played football. <laughs> what are you dull-witted cattle doing over there playing slapdick or grab-ass? Both. Certainly, horses often balked at taking the road which ran through spooky woods. The local people usually managed to go through spooky woods only in broad daylight and preferably with company. A farmhand named Williams, the story goes, had been hired to work on a farm on the other side of the, wo the woods from his home. Williams had heard tales of spooky woods, as who up there hadn't. But he was, a, he was big, rugged, and ordinarily a fearless man who paid little attention to tales of witches, haunts, haints, and supernatural happenings in the deep shadows of the woods. However, one winter night, as he returned home through the woods on foot, he did, he did feel a certain uneasiness. Perhaps it was because of the big full moon which cast odd shadows along the side of the dirt road, but he reassured himself. As he reached the center of the wooded stretch, he realized that one shadow was hurrying along ahead of him. The shadow was more than a trick of the moonlight, for it was moving quickly over the snow alongside the road. As he hurried to pass it, he saw to his astonishment that the shadow was made by two cats who were dragging an obviously dead cat between them. What a strange way for animals to act, he thought as he quickened his steps to pass him. The cats hurried too and kept, up, kept the pace with him. Then, to his increasing horror, one of them called his name. Startled as he was, he wouldn't or couldn't stop. The man began to run, desperately anxious to get out of the woods as fast as possible. The cats slowed down by their burden could not match his speed, but just as he was leaving the thick woods for the open country beyond, one of them screeched in a loud, clear, and almost human voice. Mr. Williams? Oh, Mr. Williams, when you get home, tell Molly Myers that she can come home now. Old man Hawkins is dead. Terribly shaken by his, ex his experience, Mr. Williams raced on to the security of his own home, but when he reached its warm, friendly atmosphere, he hesitated to tell his harrowing experience. Later in the evening, when his family was sitting around the fireplace, he half-jokingly told about it and finally repeated the odd message one of the cats had cried out after him. To everyone's astonishment, the old white cat lying by the hearth sprang to her feet and without once looking back, leapt up the chimney right over the burning logs and was never seen again. Had Molly Myers at last gone home? Perhaps. This one's called uh, Moonlight Ghosts of Middleton. I fucking hate cats, dude. Fuck that. <laughs> anyway, Moonlight Ghosts of Middleton. The Moonlight Ghost of Middleton had a whole village in England mystified for many years. It was in Durham County that a very odd ghost appeared in the corner of a certain field whenever the moon was full. Many people had seen the dancing, flickering, ghostly light, but nobody had dared to cross the moonlit field to challenge the apparition. Yeah, you want to fight me, ghost? Fight me. Square up on me. Put up your dukes, ghost. 
Daylight revealed nothing unusual in the field, but every month when the moon was full, and only then, the ghosts could be seen from certain points. It wasn't long before the village folks just avoided these places from where the specter was visible, for the rumor held that it was bad luck to even see the moonlight ghost. It was even wiser, the people thought, to whisper about the moonlight ghost than to talk about it in public, loud and in disbelieving tones, hence you bring the haint down on you. But there was one man who refused to whisper. That would be me. That totally would have been me. This rugged individualist, Robert Bainbridge by name, had intelligence as well as brawn. Me, definitely me. He feared hardly a man alive, and would not tremble before a flickering spirit who hadn't enough gumption to show itself in broad daylight. Me. <laughs> Scoffing contemptuously at the tales of the moonlight ghost and ignoring the warnings and sneers of the villagers, he decided to settle the matter once and for all. I'll find him and I'll fuck him up. On a night when the moon was full, he approached the field. There in the corner, he saw the flickering apparition. Now was his chance. With a quickening pulse, Robert Bainbridge strode to the corner where the dancing phantom flickered and waved. It did not flee before him, nor did it vanish. It stayed there as if waiting for him. Robert Bainbridge must have burst into a relieved laugh at what he saw, for the ghost was the reflection of the moon dancing on the surface of a long-forgotten well hidden in the grass. And so the mystery of Middleton's moonlight ghost was solved. The villagers, however, were not relieved. In fact, they resented the solution, for they had grown rather fond of the haunted field and the flickering neighbor who had lived there for so long. Come live the mystery! water sports park. I'll show your kids a great time. It's something they'll never forget and talk about for years to come, especially at therapy sessions. It's the place for magic and adventure. Leaving me free to shop and get lipo. Who's ready for the incredible Dribbles voyage? Jerry, can we come too? This is a journey you must undertake alone. It can be dark and scary. She'll shriek with delight. You wait and see. You'll be amazed. Fuck this suit's on. Glory Hole Theme Park. Open every day till 3 a.m. All right, this next one is Marie Antoinette's Necklace. Among the many tales of vanished treasure that fill the pages of history, there is the legend of Marie Antoinette's fabulous diamond necklace. Just before the French Revolution, two jewelers in league with two cardinals forced Marie Antoinette to purchase the magnificent necklace. Its price was six million pounds. During the hectic days of the revolution, the cardinals feared for the necklace's safety and had it sent secretly to England. From there, it was sent to Snow, Mexico, the haven of many exiled Frenchmen. Its fate after that was never explained, and history does not record its final resting place. Or perhaps it does. Towards the end of the 18th century, a Frenchman, accompanied by a Native American, came from Canada to a small town near what is now Nashua, New Hampshire. The two lived in a little hut on a wood road leading to Penichuk Pond. All the years he lived there, the Frenchman gave the impression that he had some great secret, but no one knew what it was. From time to time, the native went back to Canada, and then months later he returned. During his absences, the Frenchman left his hut only for food or other vital supplies. Occasionally, he walked along the edge of the little pond, apparently deep in thought. While his native friend was away on one of the periodical trips, the Frenchman died. When the native returned... He was greatly upset over the death of his companion and left again after a few days. Some years later, he came back again, carefully trying not to arouse suspicion. 
he began make, making guarded inquiries about the beautiful string of wampum. It had been in the care of the Frenchman, he said, and trust for officials in Canada when the f two first arrived. They had buried it somewhere along the shore of the Penichuk Pond, but now he couldn't find it. No one knew anything about the string of wampum, but the local people had heard of the famous diamond necklace bought years ago in a far-off land. Had that been what the Frenchman was guarding? A long and excited search began, but to this day nobody knows if somewhere along the shores of tiny Penichuk Pond, a string of wampum, the fabulous necklace of Marie Antoinette, still lies buried beneath the soil. Eh, it's probably, probably at the Vatican, if the Cardinals bought it, or made her buy it. Send them on a trip to Canada if they're looking for it, they'll never find it there. This one's called the Suicide Tree. Would you like to see a tree that is committing suicide? This was asked by a friend who knew of my interest in unusual and perhaps macabre things. Sure enough, when I arrived, I was shown a tree that was bent on destroying itself. I saw at once how the mulberry tree was killing itself by splitting the main trunk by splitting the main trunk as another section was forced through the center. This section had grown from its point of origin and apparently seeking sunlight and pushed back through the crotch of the other two sections. Over the years, as it grew larger and larger, it became deeply embedded and kept widening the split. The sap of the tree is running out through the split, and water, ice, and insects are entering to damage the tree from within. Soon it will die, a victim of its own twisted growth. I once had a similar suicide tree in my own front yard. This maple took its own life by strangulation. I wasn't aware of what happened when I first noticed that it was dying. Deciding to take it down, I first removed the branches, then dug a trench around it to cut the roots cut the roots deep in the earth. But I couldn't find any roots at all. If I rocked the tree, I thought the hidden roots would be revealed, so I tied a cable to the trunk a few feet over my head and secured the other end of the front bumper of my car. With an eye on the tree trunk and the ground about its base, I slowly backed down the driveway, expecting to see the ground hump up over the roots below. That was when I got a big surprise. As soon as the cable received a strong tug, the tree started to come right towards my car, as if eager to crush me kept coming perilously closer and closer. I backed down the drive faster and faster and got to the end just as the tree fell, missing the front bumper by inches. When my heart slowed down, I examined the bottom of the tree trunk and found something very strange. There hadn't been any roots to cut. What had happened was, what had happened was one large root had completely encircled the base of the trunk, killing all but a few tiny roots. Then this root too had died, leaving nothing to feed the tree or hold it upright. Why it stood as long as it did will always amaze me, for it was nothing but a trunk standing in a couple feet of earth. One good windstorm would have toppled it straight into my house. Having a child was the most miraculous thing I've ever experienced. When Ken and I left the hospital, I was glowing. But after a few months, the novelty wore off. The screaming, the diapers, blah. Let's face it, nobody has time to raise a kid. I realized after my third child, I hated kids. It's not like you can legally kill them anymore. We're at our wit's end. I'm miserable. Raising children has cut into my life of doing chop, taking exercise classes, and sleeping with my husband's friends. What do I do? You need a nanny! 
All parents need a helping hand now and then, sometimes full-time. At Hampshire Nannies Limited, all of our nannies were trained by professionals in England. Your little darlings are our priority. If they act up, they'll be punished properly. None of this time out or go sit in the corner business. We'll bring your children up in the classic English manner by making them learn Latin and beating them half to death in a single sex environment. Discipline gave us an empire. What's more important? Your happiness or your children's future? Call Hampshire Nannies today. Say it with me. I need a nanny. I'll bang the nanny. That's right. You need a nanny. Hampshire Nannies. I know I was supposed to be done a couple of, uh, couple of stories ago, but I am thoroughly enjoying this book. This one's called Black Knight of Canterbury. It is commonly believed that animals, particularly dogs, can sense the presence of ghosts or other supernatural beings when us mere humans are not aware of them. Perhaps this is true. A lady I heard about was visiting a small English town. She had her terrier with her. And it was her custom to take the pup for a walk every afternoon. Since she was a stranger in town, she asked one of the local people where she could walk her dog without losing her way. If she went a certain way, she was told she could take a lane to the left and keep left. She would come back to the inn with no trouble at all. Oi, you go there, you take a left, you take another left, and you'll be back in your front yard. I think there would be another left, left, left again, yeah. Three lefts. It was gray and misty as she set forth, her dog at her heels, on what she thought would be a pleasant walk. Presently, she came to the sunken, grassy lane and started down it in the mist. The little terrier dog raced ahead, enjoying his freedom to explore. Suddenly, she saw her pet stop short. Take a fat dump. For a moment, he was still, staring ahead in the mist. Then he tucked his tail between his legs, and with his back hair raised and his ears laid back, he raced back to her and hid under her long skirt, trembling and whimpering. She peered intently down the lane, but could see nothing. A moment later, a strong blast of air struck her and passed on behind her, such as she might have felt if a galloping horse had come thundering by. As she whirled about to peer behind her, the quaking terrier emerged from its hiding place. Still, she saw nothing, and presently the dog trotted off down the lane again, unconcerned. Later, back at the inn, she told of the dog's odd behavior. The innkeeper nodded, neither puzzled nor surprised. She was not the first, he said, to meet the ghost of De Tracy, one of the four black knights who had murdered Thomas A. Beckett, Archbishop of Canterbury, in 1170. After the murder, the four knights had raced off in separate directions to avoid capture. De Tracy, riding at full gallop, had taken the road from Canterbury to Dover, which had once gone through the grassy lane. Even centuries later, when it was misty and gray, walkers on the lane had felt the rush of the wind of the ghostly murderer once more racing past them in a headlong flight. What sight had filled the spunky terrier's heart with panic? Could it be that he had peered back through the ages to see that oncoming horse and its infamous rider? Perhaps it is true that dogs can see what we cannot. This one's called The Senora of Cottage Gardens. In Natchez, Mississippi, it said that the ghost of a young and beautiful senora still wanders among the magnolias of cottage gardens. It all began many years ago, long before the Civil War, at a time when Spain owned that part of the country, and a Spanish representative, Don José Vidal, was governor. Don José lived in a low, rambling, white mansion of heavy timbers surrounded by magnolias and catalpa trees, unlike the huge, double-galleried homes built later. 
While he was acting as governor for his country, he sailed home to Spain and returned with the lovely young bride to be with him in this foreign land. She was small and delicate, with great charm and dignity, and soon she made many friends. Cottage Gardens was the scene of many a gay party in the months to come. Hardly two years had passed when frightful epidemic of yellow fever struck almost overnight. All of Neches was ravaged by the dread plague. Not even the governor's woman was spared. In her room above the magnolia, she too came down with fever and soon knew that she would die, for in those days nothing could be done for the sufferers. She also knew that the plague victims were buried as quickly as possible, so there was no time for a fine funeral. Her request was that she be buried on the high bluffs overlooking the Mississippi River she had grown to love. When the end came, she was laid to rest in a hastily erected brick vault on the bluffs. The governor then fled across the river to be safe from the plague running rampant over the land. From his haven, he could see the tiny vault high on the vault high on the crypt on the cliff. Jesus, and every night he prayed for the soul of his young bride. Ever since then, people have said that the gardens of what was once the governor's mansion have been haunted by the ghost of the governor's woman. During the Civil War, soldiers who were billeted in Net Neches claimed that they saw a flitting female figure among the magnolias, a figure that refused to halt to challenge and eluded pursuit like a specter. Persons passing on the King's Highway close by, close by often reported seeing the figure, and even today many claim to have seen the Doña's ghost fitting about the shady gardens. Even those who do not believe in ghosts wonder why at certain times dogs whine and slink behind their master's legs when passing the old house. Could they alone see the pale and beautiful hostess of cottage gardens roaming about? It's said that when she appears, her dimly glowing figure is followed by a faint melody not unlike that from a guitar. It's sad, too, that the melody is foreign and sad, and with a Spanish rhythm. Perhaps the ghost of Don Jose has returned as well to keep his phantom bride company among the moonlit shadows under the magnolias along the Mississippi. And uh, I did a little research, and I actually found the song that it's alleged blows in the wind there, and I'm going to play a little bit of it for you because I think you'll like it. The Card Game at Buxton Inn On a cold and stormy night around the turn of the century, the patrons of the Buxton Inn in Maine were sitting around the roaring fire in the tap room, swapping yarns and drinking a warming brew. Suddenly there was a loud, insistent knocking at the door. The innkeeper hurried to open it, and a young man entered. His rich clothes were trimmed with gold lace, and he carried a cape over his arm. Oh, what a dandy. <laughs> He shook the snow from his tall beaver hat, stamped his booted feet, and strode to the fireplace. The others looked up with interest, admiring his fine attire, but nothing that thought nothing of it, but it was other than it was somewhat old-fashioned and unusual for the area. Undoubtedly, they thought, he was a traveler for some, from some distant city. One of them offered him a place close to the crackling hearth and suggested that he join them in a game of cards. With a cheerful smile, he agreed. 
As the evening and game progressed, the young man had uncanny good luck with every deal of the cards. The other players all felt that there was something familiar about the handsome young man. As though they had seen him many times before but couldn't place him. Oddly enough, he knew many of them by name, but he never introduced himself. It was nearly morning when another patron entered. As he removed his great coat and boots, he called to the innkeeper. I say, what's happened to your sign? I thought I must have showed up to the wrong tavern. The others looked up in startled surprise and then rushed to the window to see the swinging sign outside the door. Wiping the steam from the glass, they saw with astonishment that there was nothing upon the sign but the words Buxton Inn. But the painting of the young cavalier was gone. Then they knew. With wonder and fright upon their rugged faces, they turned once more to the fireplace, but the dapper young card expert was gone, leaving nothing but a small puddle of melted snow beneath the chair where his boots had rested. No wonder he'd looked familiar. Almost fearfully, they turned again to look at the, the tavern sign. It must have been a trick of the storm, for now, as clearly as ever, they could see the painting of young Sir Charles, resplendent in his tall beaver hat and flowing cape as he had stood for many years. Then something else caught their eye, something they'd never noticed before. One of his pockets on his breeches seemed to be bulging as though with many a kind of coin, and a smile played about his painted mouth. The kind of smile a young man wears when he's been lucky at cards, or been busy plowing your wife. Oceanborn Mary Some connection with pirates or ghosts or buried treasure is enough to give any house an element of fascination. It's a very unusual house that has a story of all three. And the house near Henniker, New Hampshire, known as the Oceanborn Mary House, is truly unique. In 1720, a band of settlers left Ireland and headed for New Hampshire. As their ship, the Wolf, approached the Atlantic coast, she was fired upon by a sinister-looking vessel, bearing down upon her with full sail. The captain of the Wolf hauled sail and came to a stop as the other vessel drew nearer. Man, should have named your boat the Sheep or the Possum. Immediately, a motley crew of pirates boarded the Wolf and swarmed over her decks. Their leader, a swarthy buccaneer called Captain Pedro, ordered all the crew and passengers of the wolf to be put to an immediate death, and the ship plundered and sunk. He was tearfully informed that a passenger named Elizabeth Fulton had just given birth to a baby girl in the cabin below deck. The pirate's eyes grew soft, and he seemed to waver in his plan to murder all aboard. Then he made a deal, which was as startling as it was unexpected. If the newborn baby were named after his dead mother, Mary, he would spare everybody on board. It was quickly agreed, and he left at once, sending back some rare silk to be used later for Mary's wedding gown. Arr, take it as a gift. From that time on, the girl was known as Ocean-Born Mary. When she grew up and married, she wore the gown of pale green silk that Captain Pedro had provided. The pirate, an old man by this time, went to New Hampshire to end his days and built the great old house on the hill. When Ocean-Born Mary's husband died... The pirate invited her to join him and share his fortune for as long as he, as he would live. She agreed. One day, she returned from a trip to find him slain with a cutlass. All the servants were gone and the house was deserted. Mary stayed there until her own death in the early 1800s. The old house built by Pedro in 1760 still stands in a fair state of repair and today may be visited by arrangement with the present owner and occupant, Mr. Louis Mar Maurice August Roy. It's quite an experience. When my daughter and I visited, we were shown through its huge rooms, old hallways, and mysterious alcoves. In one room, a huge fireplace has a great 
granite hearthstone fitted with an iron ring in the center. The stone, which weighs many tons, covers the last resting place of Captain Pedro, for it said to be the top of his tomb. Mr. Roy had told us that he lived in this old house with his mother, and as we were looking at the stone, a lady passed silently by the doorway to the outer hall. My daughter and I watched her, but she did not join us or listen to her son repeat the familiar tale once more. We thought no more about it. We climbed the high-railed stairs to see all but one of the upper rooms and noted the high-crowned floor similar to a ship's deck, for Captain Pedro's carpenters had been more used to building ships than houses. We saw the old pieces of ocean-born Mary's wedding dress and heard all about the details of the search for the buried treasure around the house. As we were about to leave, Mr. Roy again mentioned his mother, and we expressed regret that she had not joined us when we saw her in the hall. Mr. Roy looked at us searchingly. My mother, he exclaimed, in the hall? Ha! Balderdash! Why, she hasn't been out of bed in months. She's a helpless invalid. So just who was it? that we saw passing the hall door as we stood by Captain Pedro's tomb underneath the harsh, the hearth of the ocean-born Mary House on that windswept day. Let me ask you something. Have you ever seen a real dinosaur? Of course you haven't, and you never will. Fact. That's because they never existed, and science, science, is a lie. I mean, have you actually ever seen a sperm? We've all tried. All you have to do is read and understand the Epsilon Tract, and the secrets of the universe will be open to you. This is a life-altering experience. All your mortal fears will be at ease. The Epsilon Program. This time, God, it's personal. The Horse with the Braids Every part of this country has its share of tales about witches, ghosts, and supernatural happenings. This one comes from upstate New York, where a farmer lived with his wife and elderly mother. After years of living a peaceful and normal life on his prosperous farm, the farmer noticed one morning that his old gray mare seemed exhausted as though she'd been running all night. Something else was strange, too. Her mane and tail were neatly braided. The next morning, and the next, he found the mare in the same condition. Nobody in his right mind, he knew, would work a horse at night, and who would bother to braid her mane and tail? The farmer's bewilderment increased, and he told his wife and old mother about the extraordinary situation. They were frightened, and of course talked of witches. His mother was particularly worried and begged him to let things to let things alone. It was risky, she insisted, to interfere with the supernatural. He finally said he'd let things go, go on as they were going for a while, as long as the mare wasn't too tired to work the field the next day. And so it continued for several weeks. Each morning the horse was tired, and each morning her mane and tail were neatly braided. One night, shortly after midnight, the farmer had to get something from the stable. As he entered, his lantern held high. He was startled to see a huge, jet-black cat sitting upon the horse's back. The horse was trembling as though in a panic, and her mane and tail were neatly braided. In a rage, the farmer seized a handy pitchfork and rushed at the cat, jabbing its back with three sharp tines as it leapt away. The horse whinnied, and as the farmer calmed the animal, he was astonished to see the mane and tail slowly unbraid themselves and hang naturally again. Considerably shaken by his experience, he hurried back to the house and slipped into bed, filled with terror at what he had just witnessed. The next morning, he hurriedly dressed and rushed downstairs to tell his wife and mother about the night's adventure, but his mother refused to leave her room, claiming she was ill. A doctor was finally called. Over her violent objections, he examined her and found three puncture wounds in her back. The wounds never healed, but remained open and sore until the old woman's death some months later. She refused to tell how she'd gotten them. 
but the horrified son and his wife knew very well indeed. For it was she who had been sitting upon the mare's back that wild night in the form of a black cat. Ugh, gross. The Gauntlet in the Castle While sightseeing in Scotland, a young American lady joined a group that was visiting an island where a crumbling castle had recently been opened to the public. As they approached the castle, the young lady noticed that a huge cloud overhead looked like a pair of gauntlets. She called it to the attention of the others in the party, but thought nothing of it. The unusual cloud formation soon faded away. Later that day, a sudden and violent storm came up. Because the trip back to the mainland was too rough for their small boat, the sightseers were forced to spend the night at the castle. The young American was given a room in one of the towers, and she went to bed quite thrilled over the unexpected chance to spend a night there. Awakening during the night, she was surprised to see a pair of white gauntlets on the floor by her bed. The gloves were surrounded by a halo of light that illuminated a crest embroidered in red silk. As the bewildered woman raised her eyes from the strange sight, she was even more startled to see a tall, dark young man looking at her from the shadows beyond the gloves. At her gasp of surprise and sudden terror, both the glowing gloves and the young man vanished. Perhaps she thought it had been a dream, inspired by the gauntlet-shaped cloud she saw earlier. She didn't mention her ghostly visitor to anybody. After several years had passed in New York, she met a young Scotsman and married him. Shortly after their honeymoon, he received word that his maiden aunt had died in New England, and the newlyweds had to go there to close the house. It was very run-down and dilapidated, with hardly a sign that it had been lived in. The young bride occupied herself by poking around in the attic. There, in an old trunk, neatly wrapped in a bit of tartan, was a pair of white gauntlets, exactly the same as those she had seen in the castle years before. She hurried downstairs in excitement to show them to her husband and tell him about the strange coincidence. When she held them out, he turned deathly pale. So, my dear, you were the girl in the bed that night. Then he vanished. For the second time, his bride fainted, and when she came to, she was alone. Even the furniture had disappeared. Questioning the neighbors later, she was told that nobody had lived in that house for a hundred years. Good one. That one was kind of spooky. On that note, thank you all very much for listening. I am still holding auditions for podcasts on my network. If you would like to be a part of the Anthology of Horror family of shows, please reach out to me via Instagram. You can do so by finding me on Instagram. My username is DukeLandis17. It's Instagram.com slash DukeLandis, L-A-N-D-I-S, 17. And if you would like to host a show, please send me a pitch idea, and uh, we can get get to talking about where you can send your voice demo. Experience is preferred, but not necessary. There's a few, few spots left, so please don't hesitate to reach out. If you have an idea that you want to turn into a podcast, let me know. And also, if you would like to make a donation to this podcast network, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash anthologyofhorror. It would be much appreciated. That is all. All right, guys, thank you for your time, thank you for listening, and until next time, stay spooky. Spooky.